Well, good morning. Um, my name is Denny Pagel, and uh, I've been a uh, part of Grace Bible Church since 2008. Been an elder since uh, for about six years. Um, I was uh, saved at the very, very young age of 44, and uh, so, uh, and I've been saved uh, for uh, almost uh, 30 years. So that gives you somewhat of an idea of how old I am. So I've been retired for uh, uh, two years. I was uh, in the business of banking uh, for 42 years prior to that. And uh, so I, I praise God for him putting me in the right place uh, when I started working because I, I enjoyed just, a, just about every day uh, in banking. So, um, so today... Um, we're going to talk, uh, talk about biblical repentance. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll get right into it. Father, thank you for the gift of grace. It is your grace that has us here today. It is your kindness that drew us to you. And you not only sent your son to suffer and die on our behalf, but you gave us your Holy Spirit to draw us to you. And you gave us your word, which provides guidance and encouragement to us each and every day, each and every time that we open it. So we thank you, Father. Thank you for caring for us so well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, first, uh, I would like to ask a question. And the question is, how do you or how have you responded to the knowledge of sin in your life? Did you confess it, or did someone have to confront you? Were you humble and ready to turn from your sin, or were you prideful and unwilling to admit your sin? I'm sure most everyone in this room will say both prideful and in humility. But what are you known for? Are you known for a prideful response or a humble response? Are you someone who is approachable? Who, um, or do you react in a defensive manner, justifying your sin? Pride is something that we all struggle with. On many occasions, I judge the sin of others without being suspicious of my own sin or inspecting the log that is in my own eye. Sometimes I'm overly concerned about what, what others think. And just when I think I've overcome being self-centered, pride manifests itself in me in a new way. So how do we persevere through these battles? Well, the second question I have is, this one should be a con and this one should be a constant in your life. In every situation, ask yourself, what does repentance look it like in my life right now? In response to that, we're going to discuss eight marks of godly repentance. As Christians, we may all think we have a good understanding of what biblical repentance should look like. We are not only to examine ourselves, but we are to examine others who claim to be repentant. We see and observe unrepentant sin every day and must be able to identify that in our walk and look to help others to see what true repentance should look like in their lives. It is one of the most loving things that we can do to each other. The lesson... This lesson holds a very unique place in my heart because without a desire for and a practicing of true repentance, the assurance of my salvation is weak at best. Hopefully this lesson will help you see more clearly what repentance is and how God's word describes the practice of godly repentance. In 2 Corinthians 7, chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, we're going to walk through 
in detail the repentance of the Corinthians after they discredited Paul's teachings and assaulted his character. This is where we will spend most of our time today. As you turn there, in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11, let me set the stage for what was going on at this time. In Paul's first visit to Corinth, he stayed there for 18 months, which was a part of his second missionary journey. This is described in Acts 18, and it's about A.D. 51. After leaving Corinth, Paul received reports of immorality in the Corinthians church. He wrote a letter to the church to address this sin. However, the letter was lost. He received further reports of divisions in the church and received a letter from the Corinthians with questions about his teaching while he was in, while he was in Corinth. Paul responded from Ephesus with his second letter, which is, as we know it, the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul learned of further difficulties in Corinth due to self-appointed false apostles, which he described in 2 Corinthians 11, 12, and 13. Paul traveled to Corinth from Ephesus to confront the false teachers. Paul described this in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 1, as a painful visit. The Corinthians did not stand with Paul, but stood with the false teachers, and Paul was grieved by the lack of support from the Corinthians. So he wrote his third letter, which was lost, but this was known as the severe letter, and this letter was delivered by Titus to the Corinthians and caused sorrow uh, for the Corinthians. Paul was anxious to hear how the Corinthians responded to his severe letter, and finally, Titus came to Paul with news that the majority of the Corinthians had repented in, of their rebellion against Paul. Paul was comforted by Titus's report and proceeded to write his fourth letter, which we know as, today as 2 Corinthians. So let's read 2 Corinthians 7, verses 5 through 13. For even when we came to, into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. We were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by, coming, by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he, comforted, he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a little while. I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance for you were, made, you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what, e what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the, of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason... We have been comforted. So before Titus's report back to Paul, the Corinthians had abandoned him. But Paul had such a love for them as we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. And Paul writes this, and listen to Paul's heart here. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, 
so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might, so that you would be made sorrowful, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. And so John MacArthur, uh, I, I picked up uh, on a paragraph that he wrote uh, about Paul, what he was going through at this time, and he says, he was, Paul was a soul watcher, so serious and so devoted that he would literally expend himself and even give his life to protect their souls. He understood his duty. He understood the nature of it. He understood who he represented as an under-shepherd of Christ, but unfortunately, the, the Corinthians didn't. And so they had rebelled against Paul, defected from him, joined in the series of accusations made against him by false apostles. So when Paul wrote the, uh, that third letter delivered by Titus, confronting them for abandoning him, there was not yet at that time any evidence of their repentance. It wasn't until Titus returned that Paul learned the effect of his words in that third letter. It caused them sorrow. There were attitudes that Titus could discernibly see and measure in them that indicated they were repentant. The relational strife was apparently mending. Here is, the, here is a description of what their solid dependence looked like. It's not distant, in, in genera, it's not distant generalities, but close-up details. And so we're going to look at the eight marks of godly repentance. And this, these are primarily listed in verses 9 through 11 of 2 Corinthians 7. So in verses 9 and 10, we just read about the, the comparison between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is grief about your sin vertically toward God. Your focus is mainly about sinning against a holy God who hates sin. Godly sorrow is brokenness that causes us to mourn and weep over our sin, which in turn produces a fruit of repentance. In contrast, there is worldly sorrow. It is a grief. Worldly sorrow is a grief in more of a horizontal manner. You are grieved only over your circumstances, your consequences, and feelings of guilt. Worldly sorrow is only shallow repentance. And we saw in verse 9, biblical repentance requires a sorrow that is according to the will of God. And the word sorrow was mentioned eight times in the verses 8 through 11. So that tells us that this is uh, more than just a mark, it is an overarching prerequisite. So let's look, let's look at that section again, but looking closely at what it tells us about sorrow. And we're going to see five ways uh, that go godly sorrow acts in a repentant sinner's life. First of all, godly sorrow uh, points to repentance. It is sorrow that causes grief or to grieve with heaviness. If you look back at, uh, at um, verse 9 again, it says, I now rejoice that you were made sorrowful, but that you, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Genuine repentance will inevitably involve sorrow. It, it, it's a must. Note the extremes in verse 7 involved where genuine repentance is found. We see Paul's words that, uh, where we, we find rejoice, but we also see mourning and sorrow, being sorrowful. There is sorrow to rejoice over. The sorrow that leads us to, that leads us to the destination of repentance. 
So notice that sorrow is not the destination or the goal, but repentance is. Sorrow precedes genuine repentance. Godly sorrow does not act like guilt. Many of us get these two mixed up. Feeling guilty is being aware of your guilt. We know that we did something wrong when we feel guilt. Not that there's anything wrong with feeling guilty, but understand this. You can feel guilt to the point of sorrow, but not have godly sorrow. Judas was sorrowful, but not truly repentant. Peter is a great example. In fact, uh, let's turn there and see his response. We're going to go to Luke 22, verses 54 through 62. In verse 54, it says, Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them, and a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them, too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galatian, too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the words of the Lord. He had, he had told him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went, out, he went out and wept bitterly. Verse 62 is godly sorrow. You know uh, how we know that, uh, that it is that it's just not guilt, because in John 21, it tells us that Peter would die a martyr. And tradition indicates that that's exactly what happened in about 68 AD. We know his life was marked by one that stood by his Savior. If you want true repentance, it will be sorrowful in getting there. This requires the right view of your sin. So let's look at another example. Let's go to 2 Samuel, verse, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. And let's read that. When the Lord, when Yahweh sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city. One, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many f flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. He would, it would eat of his, his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his boos bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to, to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. 
I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I would have added to you more, many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will raise up evil against you for your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and, will, and he will lie with your wives in a broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. So in verses 5 and 6, David could see the sin in this parable. Then if you look at verse 7, Nathan says, you are the man. Can you just picture David's temperament changing here? He thought his sin was done in private, and Nathan just lays it out before him. I promise, I promise you this, that David felt the guilt in the years leading up to this conversation. In verses 7 through 12, Yahweh describes his favorable treatment of David. Then Yahweh describes David's sin, both toward Yahweh and toward man. And then finally, he declares the penalties of David's sin. David's guilt turned to sorrow. Then in verse 13, David's repentance is boiled down to five biting words from a man with full knowledge of his own sin. I have sinned against Yahweh. David's guilt turned to godly sorrow. Sorrow unto repentance is the sorrow that God is after. That is the sorrow God is pleased with. That is the sorrow that you can experience on the way to genuine repentance. So the goal is not merely to be sad when you have sinned. The goal is repentance, and you will be sorrowful on the way there. That is the sorrow that operates according to the way God works. Godly sorrow has no loss. In verses 9 and 10, it says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. When the world is sorrowful, it is usually because it has lost something. God's sorrow, the sorrow of repentance, suffers no loss. We see in, in verses 7, 9a, we see the word rejoicing, and then we see in verse 9d, no loss. You were yet where there is joy and no loss, there is sorrow. The only way they would not have suffered loss is if they had not repented. In verse 10, it explains how there is no loss in this sorrow unto repentance. The repenter, the repentant believer, has no regrets in turning from his sin. Godly sorrow looks at your sin through God's eyes. You do not see your sin as something you miss or you long for anymore. There is such a thing, there is such a thing as buyer's remorse or buyer's regret. But there is no such a thing as repenter's remorse. 
in getting true repentance, you have only gained. You can rejoice over that and will never be regretful for it. So godly sorrow brings good. This is sorrow that you want. It is sorrow that you rejoice over. A sorrow only, a sorrow you only gain from and never lose from. A sorrow you will never regret. How amazing is that? This is the sorrow that you experience in genuine repentance. It is the kind of sorrow the world has never known. Do you want to know why? The world has its own sorrow. It is the opposite of good sorrow. The world's sorrow leads to death, both spiritual, spiritual and physical. What does this look like, or what is it like? Well, number one, being sorry for getting caught or having to give up or losing a pet sin. There is no joy in their sorrow, no sweetness in their bitterness, only regret in their sorrow. And this is dangerous sorrow. It is a sorrow that is associated with death. There is a blessed sorrow that leads to repentance, and there is a cursed sorrow that should be repented of, the sorrow of the world. So what does worldly sorrow look like? Well, you remember in Genesis, the sorrow of Cain. Cain consistently, constantly grumbled that his, uh, about his consequence, that it was too heavy to carry. He wouldn't repent of his hatred and murder. You have the sorrow of King Saul. King Saul had wounded, wounded pride, no longer had the favor of God, but would not turn from his spiritual defection. And let's not forget the sorrow of King Ahab. He was despondent, filled with self-pity when he couldn't get Naboth's vineyard. He would not repent of his coveting. And as we said earlier, the sorrow of, of Judas, overwhelmed by his betrayal of Jesus, wept bitterly. However, he did not return to Christ, but instead ran away and committed suicide. Godly sorrow produces repentance, humility, and unity. When true repentance comes, you will know, because you will have a sorrowful heart that is also joyful, to no longer be headed, to be headed in the direction of the sin that you, in the direction that you were on before, in that sinful direction. It is a sorrow that won't regret turning from your sin. It won't leave you feeling like you have lost anything, but only have gained. It is a sorrow that gives you evidence of salvation, that you, of the salvation you've been enjoying. A sorrow that is aligned with God's will. Godly sorrow, with godly sorrow you be humbled, your sorrow will be focused on your Savior, His holy name, how He suffered in your place, how your fellowship with Him is obstructed, and how you have been disobedient to His word. With godly sorrow, you want to restore relationships. Your sorrow will be that you hurt others, hindered unity, and fellowship with them. You'll be sorrowful that you were a poor example to both believers and unbelievers. This kind of sorrow suffers no loss when sin is turned from. This sorrow has no regrets. This sorrow points to your genuine salvation. So that's a discussion, uh, a discussion in regard to sorrow. So let's now turn to verse 11. And this is the second mark of godly repentance. Verse 11 says, For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, 
in everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Note the way that Paul begins. For behold, this is an exclamatory and and exhilarating phrase. It is a statement that says, wow, you are making it very clear of what you are feeling. Paul is is exhilarated by what he sees and what he has heard as Titus brings to him the report from the Corinthians. Titus is bringing an eyewitness account. It appears that Paul, to Paul, that their repentance had real substance. It was practical. It was visible. And it had observable effects. These are the things that you look for in repentance. So read again the first sentence in verse 11. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. Just in reading this statement, you have a pretty good idea how Paul feels about this report. It is a report that causes his heart to melt. It is a treasured report. It is and a note and note that the use of the exclamatory word, what, what earnestness, what indignation, what fear. So first we're going to talk about, or let's talk about uh, uh, earnestness next. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. Earnestness is a persistent striving to correct a pattern of sin. MacArthur says the following. So here's the first thing. Where there is real repentance, there, is a, there will be a manifest earnestness produced. What is it? It is a word for eagerness. And what it, it means is eagerness toward righteousness, toward purity. It ends the indifference towards sin, the indifference towards iniquity, the complacency about sin, the deception that, le- that led that person into it, into it in the first place. It produces a strong desire to do right. It makes things right. To make restitution, to correct, to restore the broken relationship. There will be a passion. There will be a movement to make it right and eagerness. Earnestness is that sprinting from sin toward righteousness, toward holiness. It is eager and active. The Corinthians once had been unable to move. They couldn't be moved to defend Paul. They were unconcerned to do so. They believed lies about him. They were inactive, not eager eager to defend him, but now they actively were eager toward him. They were repentant. They were eager and active to straighten this whole thing out, earnest to resolve their offense, earnest for what is right. Whatever had them hesitant toward Paul is now gone. Earnestness is not a burst or a flash in the pan, but sustained activity to move in the direction of holiness. Earnestness reveals repentance. This is a situation that you don't have to push or command the the individual to do what is right. They are willingly and aggressively moving toward righteousness, no matter what the consequences. Our third mark of godly repentance is vindication. What vindication of yourselves? Again, notice the exclamatory word, what? This word seems to take the meaning of the statement to an elevated level. What does vindication mean? It means to clear your name. You want to remove the reputation you have for that sin. It is a strong desire to remove yourself from that sinful pattern and to restore with all whom you've sinned against. You seek to restore trust and confidence. You want to do what, was, what is right. 
It is like a son who is eager to clear himself before his dad, not by lying, defending, or denying what they did, but by going humbly through confession, acknowledging their wrongdoing. The only way to vindicate yourself when you are guilty is through acknowledging your sin and demonstrating you are now moving away from that sin. Vindication reveals repentance. The fourth mark is indignation. Indignation is anger and outrage over the decision to sin. It is anger with yourself and anger over the shame you have brought onto your Lord and Savior. Outrage is a strong word. The Corinthians were outraged over their own sin against Paul in not coming to his defense. They now hate what they once loved and practiced, which was hanging Paul out to dry. It is a disdain for what they had done. Repentance evidences a radical change in mind towards sin. Where there once was a love for sin, there is now outrage. That is about as radical change as you can undergo. Indignation reveals repentance. Number five is what fear? Fear is a healthy reverence for God who is most offended by our sin. So let's start with the fear of God. You experience a worshipful fear of God that arises out of a sense of his majestic holiness and the purity of his selfless love for you. He is so holy that you fear wronging him. He is so loving that you fear betraying his love. You are sobered into holiness where you had once been casual and unconcerned in your sin, where you had no sight of God as you looked on your sin with delight, suddenly you become aware of God and his character. You see the grotesque evil you are trifling with. It was always this way, but scales have fallen from your eyes, and now you see God and your sin as you should. It is a fear that is worshipful. It does not run from God, but to God. It is a fear that does not make you run away from your offended brother, but to your offended brother to reconcile. Fear reveals repentance. MacArthur says this, will there, there will be a longing driving eagerness to make the relationship right. There will be a strong desire to clear one's name and remove the stigma of that sin that the stigma that sin has brought. There will be hatred, outrage, indignation over iniquity in one's own life. And there will be a longing to reverence God and fear God and exalt God and worship God appropriately. This is a new sense of holy fear. Number six is indignation. What indignation? What fear? No, excuse me. Uh, what, what longing? Yes. In, in the phrase, what indignation, what fear, and now what longing? Um, this is the sixth mark of godly repentance. Longing is a strong desire to restore the relationship that has been harmed because of sin. The Corinthians were now positively drawn toward Paul. They desired Paul, reconciling with him. They yearned to see him with strong, positive affection. They no longer wanted to distance themselves from him. They were no longer withholding him, themselves from him. They were keeping themselves at a distance. They were not keeping themselves at a distance from him, but longing for him. Longing reveals repentance. 
But there was even more than longing. Paul experienced more than the Corinthians longing for him. He experienced zeal. And this is the second, seventh mark of godly repentance. Zeal is a passion motivated by both love and hate. You love something so much that you hate anything that brings harm to it. You have a zeal for the word of God and hate anything that blasphemes God's truth. Zeal goes beyond longing. The Corinthians were stirred up into a, an even greater fervor for Paul. They had an intense desire to give Paul evidence of their repentance. They were zealous to comply with anything, anything more that could be done to put their relationship with Paul on solid ground. So they have not just turned from their sin. They have not just turned toward Paul. They do not just long for Paul, but they are zealous for Paul and their relationship with him. They are, zealous, they are zealous to remove every obstacle that is between them and Paul. The last mark of godly repentance in verse 11 is avenging of wrong. When repentance is real, it seeks justice for the avenging of wrongs. Justice is applying a, a consequence that avenges the wrong and promotes holiness of life. That's when you know you're repentant. When you're done defending yourself, done trying to protect yourself, done pitying yourself, but rather you are avenging the wrong you've done. Listen to this. They were ready for justice, ready to bring justice down, even though it was going to fall on their own heads Avenging of wrong reveals repentance. So what about the last statement in verse 11? In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter, Paul is reminding them that through repentance, they are innocent in this matter. And he is saying that their repentance is only for, the, for this sin only. Repentance involves admitting to specific sins and requesting forgiveness for those whom you have sinned against. Though these marks of repentance are helpful, I want to end today with some encouragement. One author says this about godly sorrow. God can use this kind of sorrow because it moves one to action. The classic example is the prodigal son who came to himself and went home to confess his unworthiness to his father. Godly grief is therefore not to be regretted. It cracks the whip that motivates us to go to God and our salvation takes root in it. John Chrysostom argued that sorrow is good for nothing but sin. It fails to mend most ailments. For example, sorrow over the loss of money does not restore money. Sorrow over the loss of a child does not bring that child back to life. Sorrow over sickness does not cure the sickness. Sorrow over sin, however, can be a positive when it sorrows kindness, kin, when the sorrow kindles repentance. It incites us to seek to do something about the problem that is taking the past tense and allowing God to turn it into his future tense. John Newton knew himself to be the greatest of sinners, but after coming to God, he composed these words. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in the believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his, wind, his wounds, and drives away his fear. So how do we describe a repenter? Well, a repenter renews his mind with truth from Scripture consistently, not perfectly, but consistently looking to God's word, God's word for truth. A repenter 
responds to God immediately and again, not perfectly, but does respond to God with humility. At the first sign of conviction, he agrees with God about his sin, turns away from it, and turns toward Yahweh. A repenter obeys God, and his repentance is thorough. He does not cast a longing look back at his sin. He forsakes the temporary pleasure of that sin for abiding in the joy of God's blessing. A repenter follows God personally. He does not base his commitment to God on what others are doing. And finally, a repenter accepts God's discipline faithfully. Realizing that sin has consequences, he accepts the discipline as an act of love and as a reminder when he next faces temptation. So there are some uh, godly provisions for the faithful repenter. Uh, we find comfort and encouragement. We saw that in verses 6 and 7 of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And it's a, uh, um, one of the encouraging things that we do encounter is watching and being a part of someone who is repentant and uh, how encouraged we are when they're undergoing and sharing that repentance. And we have innocence. This is a crowning affirmation. They had only been guilty before, but now they are innocent in the matter. This means a fresh start. For the Corinthians, the guilt is gone. They were walking now in their relationship with Paul in innocence as far as Paul was concerned. And repentance does this. It brings a new day of relational innocence. This says so much about the forgiving kind of man Paul was. Paul wasn't unnecessarily ruthlessly holding their guilt against them, not extracting a pound of flesh. He isn't mercilessly sifting them, analyzing their deficiencies. He's living by the principle that judgment will be merciless to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James 2.13. Paul didn't hold the sentence of guilt over them any longer than necessary. Now he's waving his hand over them, declaring them innocent in their relationship. This doesn't mean that there is no correction needed for other sin. Two things can be true at the same time. Paul believes that they are repentant and in a new day of innocence with him, and he also believes that they still need more correction. All these show that repentance is in relational conflict takes a huge leap toward the one we offend. That is how we will know when you're repentant in a broken relationship. To claim repentance, but then to withdraw from or keep your distance from a brother or a sister requires some careful heart searching still. However, sin does damage relationships. Paul was gracious to the church at Corinth, but we cannot expect all of the people we, we sinned against to act this way. We repent, we try to restore, and we trust God with those that have a harder time trusting us again. Sin has consequences. So where is our assurance? We are promised victory in Romans 6, verses 4 through 7. Let's turn there real quick and read that. Verse 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have be become united with him in the likeness of his death, 
certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. We need to keep our promised victory in view as we battle sin. Christ's victory over death and sin enables your victory over sin. As described in Romans 6, 4, we have the ability to walk in newness of life. We are free from sin's rule. How else do we have assurance? As believers, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you look at Romans 8, verses 12 through 14. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Only by his power can we put the sins, put to death the sins of the body. And repentance comes through that. We need to cry out to him, cry out for help, cry out for his power, cry out for the comfort that he gives us in our fight with sin. Repentance comes no other way. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. 2 Peter 2.2 like newborn babies, long for the pure work of the milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And then Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you an endorsement to memorize God's word. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for showing us clearly what repentance is, how we are to acknowledge it, how we are to walk in it, and how we are to restore first with you and then restore with those whom we have sinned against. It is a running to you, not away from you. It is a running toward those whom we have sinned against and reconciling and restoring that relationship. What sweetness that is. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.